Philippians chapter 1, verses 18b through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of the Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause for joy in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Good evening. My name is Jason, and I am the staff pastor here at Grace Downtown, and we are so glad that you've chosen to worship with us tonight. As you just heard Pastor Jeff read from Philippians, we are continuing our series as we go verse by verse or concept through concept through Philippians uh, this winter, where we are taking a look at the letter that Paul wrote from jail to this church in Philippi. If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, I want to do a little bit of review of where we've been. In this letter, Paul is writing to this church in Philippi uh, that he helped plant, but really it was planted from a few people that we read about in Acts chapter 16. We see people from three different ethnicities and three different socioeconomic status come together and start this church in Philippi. So from the very beginning, the church in Philippi, like so many churches throughout history, there's diversity in the church. And so the one thing that holds them together is their identity that they find in Christ. There are three big themes that we're taking a look at because Paul continuously goes back to them in this letter. We are taking a look at how Paul believes that he is in a gospel partnership with the church in Philippi. So we're looking at what a gospel partnership looks like. We also will see this theme as we see in tonight's reading that we can suffer well if we are in Christ, no matter what our circumstances are. And ultimately, we can really only find our true identity in Christ and Christ alone. We've entitled this series, Recovering Our True Identity. And the reason that we have named it that is that we feel like that our identity needs to be recovered. Because not only is the world finding their identity in the things of this world, but far too often the church is finding their identity in the things of this world instead of who Christ says that they are. Either we have lost our sense of identity and we are continuously running around trying to find what our true identity is, or we think we found our identity, but it's really just a foundation of sand. So we're talking about as we go through Philippians, what is our true identity? What does it mean to be the church of God? What does it mean to be in Christ? And how does that impact our daily life? Would you pray with me as we get started? Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. Thank you for this letter that Paul wrote from prison. God, with his life on the line, he could do nothing but 
boast about you, Jesus, and what you had done for him. God, I pray that you would instill us with that same faith, that same courage, that same peace and joy that comes from knowing that we are in Christ. God, speak to each one here tonight. Wherever we may find ourselves, whatever we may be wrestling with, even if it's death itself, that we are staring in the face with someone we love, whether it's just the daily dying to self that we're struggling with, or if we're looking for identity in the things of this world and we are found wanting, God, I I pray that you would show us what we need to see in your word tonight. In Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. In this passage, Paul not only talks about dying, death for him could be imminent at any moment. We are all afraid of dying, of our demise. By this, I mean many things. We fear aging. No one likes to find those first gray or in my situation, white hairs. Nobody likes to find those. It's a sign of aging, that we're fragile. We fear that our life is going too fast, no matter what our age is. We fear that we will suffer an untimely or an early death. It keeps us up in the middle of the night. And then once we have children, we're afraid something will happen to them. When I say that we all fear dying, I mean all of these things, but that's not specifically what I'm talking about here tonight and not ultimately what Paul is talking about either. What I'm primarily talking about is how we live our everyday lives. We have a scarcity mindset when it comes to life. A scarcity mindset is a a kind of sociological term, and it's usually used for kids in poverty that aren't sure when they go to open up the fridge if there will be food in the fridge. So often when they do have food in front of them, they they eat everything in front of them because they're afraid there's not going to be food there at the next meal. That's a scarcity mindset. We have a scarcity mindset when it comes to life. We think we're only going to live so long. Time is passing us by. We fear in the back of our minds that we're losing time. And so we gorge ourselves on the things of this world. We try to squeeze every last pleasure, every last piece of happiness out of the things of this world. And we start worshiping the creation instead of the creator. We have a fear that our lives are running out of time. There's a whole field of study in psychology. It was popularized by Sheldon Solomon and a a team of psychologists that came up with the term terror management theory. Terror management theory. Seems like some cheery guys, right? They wrote a paper that turned into a book called The Worm at the Core on the Role of Death in Life. They were building off of a larger field of study called death anxiety. And they were the first to really dig into not just a fear of death, but how our fear of death impacts our everyday life. And their theory is that every decision that we make is terror management. We are just trying to manage this low-lying, just-below-the-surface terror that our life is passing us by and we're going to die. Tonight, as we look at the Apostle Paul, we see something very different. And in fact, from him, we learn that what you believe about death ultimately determines how you live. What you believe about death determines how you live. That's what 
these psychologists were getting at, but Paul had a very different view of death and of life. Open up with me to Philippians chapter 1. We'll first take a look at this passage and, and dive in deep to what Paul is writing here, and then we'll make some application for our everyday lives. Philippians chapter 1, just as Jeff just read for us, we'll start in verse 18. The first part of verse 18 uh, we covered last week, so I want to give you a little recap with it. Verse 18 of chapter 1, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. If you back up a few more verses to verse 12, Paul talked about no matter what happens to him, whatever the past, whatever's happened in the past to him, whatever the future may hold, whatever happens, his desire is that Christ would be glorified. And in fact, he believes that Christ already is being glorified as some in the imperial guard and in Caesar's household, as we learn in chapter four, have come to faith because Paul is in chains, because Paul is imprisoned and he can't stop talking about the good news of what Jesus has done for him. And these guards, as Brooks pointed out last week, are stuck listening to him all day talk about the gospel. How'd you like to be chained next to the Apostle Paul and his long run-on sentences as he gets excited about the gospel. He's spreading the good news throughout the Imperial Guard, even in his imprisonment. The whole idea last week is that Paul's greatest desire was to see Christ glorified in all that he did. And he told us that we can rest in that. He told the church in Philippi that they could rest in that. He says here that no matter how Christ is proclaimed, he's going to rejoice in that. Whether it's his suffering, whether it's the suffering of the church, whether it's even some preaching the gospel for their own gain, he still rejoices that the good news is being proclaimed. So look with me at the second half of verse 18 where we started here tonight. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul, once again, says, I'm going to keep rejoicing. I'm going to continue my thought. This was two different sermons, and it's broken up by a section heading in your Bible. But this is one thought where Paul's like, I'm going to keep on rejoicing. Again, let's think about where Paul is. He is in chains. He is in prison He is facing the threat of death every day. He doesn't know when the pen is going to be taken from his hand and he is going to be taken and his head is going to be chopped off. And he says, yet I will rejoice. So why is he rejoicing? Let's read verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. There are two reasons that Paul is rejoicing according to verse 19. The first one is in the gospel partnership that he shares with the church. The gospel partnership that he shares with the church. He shares in this partnership, not only with the church in Philippi, but with the other churches that he has planted and that he's connected to. And as he writes these letters, which is how we get the majority of our New Testament, he reminds them that they're in a gospel partnership. And primarily, that's why he's writing to this church in Philippi, to thank them for their gospel partnership, even as he is in prison. He feels connected to them in that way. He feels like that is what is holding them together. They have pastors. They have a church. He's off in Rome in prison, but he still feels like they're 
connected by something. We too have a gospel partnership with any church in this world that proclaims Christ and the good news of the gospel. We share in a partnership in the gospel and in the divided times in which we find ourselves, we need to remember that we have brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. So he's rejoicing again because of the partnership they have in the gospel. The second reason is that he is looking forward to his deliverance. He says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Let's look again at his situation back up to verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul is in chains. He could be put to death at any time. But he says, I anticipate my deliverance. What kind of deliverance is he anticipating? Let's keep reading. Verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Is Paul rejoicing that he will be set free? No. Paul, we expect him after he says, especially when we read on, you're going to see here in just a minute, He's pretty sure he is going to be released. The Spirit shows him he's going to be released, but that's not what he's rejoicing in. He's rejoicing in his deliverance because he knows that whether by life or by death, Christ will be glorified, and that is Paul's greatest good. That's the thing he values the most. It's the thing that he desires the most. It's his dying wish that Christ would be exalted, whether by life or by death. So when he talks about deliverance, it's his eager expectation and his hope that he won't be ashamed of the gospel and he, whether by life or by death, will glorify Christ. That's what he is so excited about, Christ being honored in his body. And then we come to verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. In just a moment, we're going to talk a little bit more. It's really the application tonight of what it means to live in Christ, for Christ to be your very life. But right now, I'd like us to talk about what does he mean by to die is gain? Who will gain from Paul's dying? First, the imperial guard in Caesar's household. Through Paul's imprisonment, through his eventual execution, we read here in chapter 1 and then in chapter 4 that Caesar's household is coming to faith. That Paul, through his imprisonment and through his eventual execution in Rome, is proclaiming the gospel to people that he otherwise wouldn't have met. If he just stays in Philippi and becomes senior pastor of the church in Philippi and retires with a nice severance package, Caesar's household doesn't hear the gospel. And he's saying that is gain 
even if I die, that's gain because Gentiles are hearing the good news of the gospel. So who gains from his dying? The imperial guard and Caesar's household. Who, who gains from his dying? The church. The church. He says, my, the gospel will advance and the church will be encouraged. The church will be emboldened. That's what he talks about here. The church being emboldened to share their faith. Saying, well, if Paul can do it, then I'm going to do it. And if Paul says to me to live as Christ and to die as gain, that's how I should live as well. These churches are taking their lead from Paul. And he says that it is for your gain, even if I die. What is Paul doing as he sits there in chains? Besides annoying the guard that he's changed to by sharing the gospel with him, he's also writing a third of the New Testament from this time forward in his life. As he's imprisoned in Rome, for the first time and then the second time, he's writing about a third or half of his letters, but about a third of the New Testament. So when he says for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, he means right here, right now, in these circumstances, the cause of Christ is being advanced. And I am honoring Christ in my body, even as I sit here in this terrible situation. Before we have too much of like a Western modern view of the situation that Paul was in, I'm guessing that a first century prison is not somewhere that you wanted to be. And oh, by the way, the guy that held his future in his hands, the one that determined whether he would be executed or not, is Nero. Have you heard of this guy? Not a great guy. It's what you name dogs when they kill people. Like, it's a bad guy. Nero is not a good guy, and he is the one that holds Paul's future in his hands. Yet Paul says, even if I were to die, it is gain for the kingdom. Who is it gain for, even if he dies? It's gain for himself. Paul says that even if I am put to death, even if this is my last day on earth, It is to my gain because I will be united with my Savior. I get to be with Jesus. If he says my very life is to be in Christ, he says, well, then my death means I'm with Christ. So either I get to be in Christ and my body honors him in everything that I do, even unto death, or I can die and be with him. I'm in a win-win situation. But Paul puts it even more strongly with these words. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He says, I'm hard pressed between these two desires. I'm hard pressed between the desire to keep on proclaiming the good news of Jesus in my body, even in my suffering. And it's better for you if I continue on but I also want to be with Christ. And he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. This word that he uses, hard pressed, is the same one that he uses in 2 Corinthians when he says, Christ's love constrains us. He is being pressed from both sides and he has two strong desires that are pressing against him and also pulling him in two opposite directions. It's a a really kind of strange idiom or word picture in Greek that he's using here. 
being pressed and being pulled apart at the same time by two desires. We probably know what that feels like. But I don't know about you, but I typically am not being pulled apart by those two desires. I know what it means to be pulled apart by the desire of the flesh and the spirit on what I know is best for my family and what I want to do or the easy road and the hard road. Paul is hard pressed between living for Christ and dying for Christ. He is hard pressed. He is constrained by this idea of to live is Christ, but die is gain. Let's finish up in verses 25 and 26. Convinced of this. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. It seems from these two verses that the Spirit had revealed to Paul that he would be released and he would get to continue to minister to them. But his greatest joy, his greatest desire is to glorify Christ and he has joy because he feels he will be delivered and Christ will be glorified whatever the outcome may be. So we're going to take a look at how Paul viewed death, joy, and Christ. And we're going to take a look at how we normally view death, joy, and Christ as well. So first, how did Paul view death as gain? He viewed it as gain because he got to be with his savior. He was so convinced of the good news of the gospel, not just being for Gentiles to the end of the earth or the Jewish people as a corporate body, but he truly believed that what Christ has done, Christ's righteousness had been credited to him. And he so loved Christ and he so believed in what Christ had done for him, he could not wait to be united with his Savior. He couldn't wait to look, look at him face to face. So he saw to die was gain. How do we view death? We don't. We don't. We, we don't want to think about it. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to think about our loved ones dying. We don't want to think about our own death. We don't think about it. It is not a positive animating principle in our life. We often think about it as a location and we think about what do we picture when we picture heaven. We often think about people we'll be reunited with, but we don't think about it as gain because we don't think about it being with Christ. Christ is the joy of heaven. Christ is the reward of heaven. He is the one that we get to be with forevermore. Imagine the greatest moments of joy that you've had on this earth. Imagine the greatest moments of joy that you've had when thinking about the good news of the gospel. Think about the joy that came at your moment of salvation. But in heaven, we will see him face to face. But we don't think about that. It's not a positive animating principle in our life. But to Paul, it is. How did Paul view joy? By doing the will of Christ. Paul's greatest joy was doing the will of Christ, was doing what Christ had called him to do, even if it led to his very death. Clearly, as you read the book of Acts and as you hear the stories that he tells in these letters to the churches, Paul was willing to go anywhere and do anything that Christ called him to do. And how was he able to do that? 
Because he believed that Christ had done the same for him. That Christ had given his very life in order to win a sinner like you and me and Paul to himself. So how did Paul view joy as doing the will of Christ? How do we view joy? It's circumstantially dependent. It depends. Sitting in prison with Nero holding our life in his hands does not sound like a recipe for joy or peace. I think it would be so tempting to be in a woe is me in that moment and maybe not have the good news of the gospel on my lips and annoy the guy that I'm chained to with the good news of the gospel. Our joy Our concept of joy is so circumstantially dependent. Well, once this happens or once this obstacle is out of the way or once I hit this milestone or this age or I have this comfort or these means, then I can have joy. And you know what? That day never comes where joy is easy. And all the circumstances are perfect where joy is just a default. It just isn't going to happen. We are so desperate to try to create heaven here on earth and experience as much joy as we can here on this earth. But Paul saw joy as a byproduct of doing the will of the Father. And he got that idea from a really good source, Jesus. Jesus saw that the greatest joy was in doing the will of the Father. And then in John chapter 15, Jesus says, when you obey my commands and you remain in me and my words remain in you, then you will experience complete joy. Lastly, how did Paul view Christ? As life. As life itself. Colossians 3, 4, Paul writes, When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will be with him in glory. Paul believed that Christ was his life. That his whole life was motivated by who Christ was, what Christ had done for him, and telling others about Christ. Paul viewed Christ as life. How do we often view Christ? As a complement to other things in our life. As an add-on on the a la carte menu of life, that it's this plus Jesus. We so often live our lives with this equation, Jesus plus blank will equal my joy, my happiness, or life. And we fill that blank with all kinds of things. Sometimes it's overt. I drove past a a flag flying outside of someone's house yesterday that said, God, guns, and Trump. Sometimes it's overt like that, but a lot of times it's just subtly the way we live our lives. It's Jesus plus a drink equals peace. Jesus plus a boyfriend equals joy. Jesus plus getting into the program, getting the job, being done with college, having a kid, my kids being healthy. Whatever it is, it's Jesus plus that thing will equal my happiness. But then we either endlessly look for those things and they leave us wanting or we get that ultimate thing and we find it doesn't really 
bring joy. So Jesus plus anything equals anxiety and anger. When it's Jesus plus something else equals life, it leads to anxiety, an endless search for more, an endless scarcity mindset that I have to sop up all this world has to offer in happiness, all the pleasures, all the things that the world has to offer, all the created order in order to have life. And it's an anxious battle of just running around, consuming things, trying different relationships, trying different pleasures, trying different lifestyles and identities in order to have peace and joy. And then we don't get it or something gets in the way and we have anger. Friends, the sad reality is I didn't have to look this up in a commentary. I just live it. When I am living in the flesh, I don't forget that Jesus is good. I just think I need Jesus plus something else. And when I don't feel like I can get it, there's anxiety and there's anger. Paul saw Christ as his very life. He was hard pressed between his desire to do the work that God had called him to and death so he could be reunited with his savior. Let's go back to our big idea from tonight. What you believe about death determines how you live. Paul believed that he would be reunited with his savior, that he would see his savior face to face. And that was a great gain. Or he could live in the reality of living in Christ, being hidden with Christ in God, having Christ take Paul's sin and handing Paul his righteousness. And living in that reality was also great gain. He puts it very overtly in a passage you're probably familiar with in 1 Corinthians. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the part that you're probably familiar with. I probably quote it every year at Easter. It's an incredible praise God moment in scripture that because Christ overcame death, we can overcome death, but there's more. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. If death has died in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And if there is a resurrection to come for those who are in Christ, it makes us immovable, steadfast, abounding in the work of the Lord to the point where Christ and the good news of the gospel is our life. If you believe that Christ has been raised and that you will be raised, then what can defeat you? And what earthly pleasure could be better than the pleasure and the joy of being in Christ? Even death itself will not have the last word of your story. 
Satan and all his dominion of darkness and the kingdom of man thought that they had beaten Jesus. But he rose from the grave. He had the final word. And he has the final word over your life as well. So even if death itself were to take you tonight, if you are in Christ, Christ will have the final say. And you will be raised from the dead and you will see your Savior face to face. What you believe about death determines how you live. And if you are in Christ, you know what the future holds even if death were to come. And that should be the animating principle of our lives. That should lead us to a peace and a joy that cannot be explained in any other way. We're going to take a moment here and we're going to watch a video of Alex and Trisha Ludvicek. Uh, they grew up at Grace Community Church. They were in the youth group when I was the youth pastor at Grace. Then they came downtown here and they were with us for a pretty long season here uh, on furlough. But on January 1st, they flew back to Indonesia. And this video tells you a little bit about their ministry, some of the things that they've faced and what they've learned about the gospel from being on the field. We wanted to update you so that you can continue to pray for them and support them, but it's also fitting for tonight's sermon as well. Let's take a look. It takes a long time to get settled in a new culture. We feel a lot more now for people who are coming here to the university who have been from other places and the American culture is foreign to them. They're not very comfortable with the language. We feel that um, pretty intensely. So now that we've been there for a full term for MAF, we're ready to go back and be more um, intentional with relationships there, be able to dig more into church. It's hard and it's intimidating, but I think now that we have our feet on the ground there a little bit, we're excited to dig into relationships in a way that it was a little bit harder to do when everything was new. When we left for Indonesia, our oldest was 18 months, and then we had our second when we were in language school, actually, so we had him in Jakarta. They love the life that we have over there. They get to play outside every day because it doesn't get negative 50, you know, <laughs> and cold like it does in Iowa. In Nabire, we live on the airport, so we also also live right by the hangar, right by, right where all the work is going on. So Jack loves to run over to the office. He likes to hang out with our, our secretary and she teaches him Indonesian and gives him more candy than I would like him to have. And <laughs> Jack often gets to ride with me when when I'm doing run-ups or when I taxi the airplane to, to get some more fuel at the main apron. He sits up in front. He has his little pilot uniform on and pretends to fly. It's just a lot of fun for him. Overseas context for our kids is wonderful. They get to see what the real world looks like, how poverty is real. Life isn't so glamorous for everybody and they get firsthand experience into seeing what that looks like. As parents, we see a lot of the sacrifices that we're giving up. You know, they don't get to be around their grandparents all the time or very often at all, once every couple years. But the, the trade-off of what they're seeing God do in the world is it's really worth it to us. In Papua, in particular, they believe in spirits and they're in fear of the spirits. So there might be trinkets or trees or different animals that 
can house the spirits and they have to appease them at all costs. So what they do is they, they do a revenge killing of someone else from a different tribe or they might even kill their own children. So it's really just living out of fear, constant fear. I go into villages where they don't know the gospel and it's just dark. I can see it in their eyes, they're unsettled. And then you, you see other villages where the, the church is active and thriving and it's totally night and day different, just their demeanor even. And I see villages recently where they didn't know the gospel and then while I was there, it was presented to them throughout these different lessons and they really transformed. It's, it's amazing to see the heart level transformation that even goes into physical transformation of living in fear of the spirits and then being secured in, in Christ and not having to, to be afraid. We get to support all of these different things, whether it's local evangelists or foreign missionaries who are coming in and helping these people come out of this darkness and see like the goodness of what God is in the world. We get to be a part of all of that, which is really neat. Sometimes that is a slow process. It's going into villages where there isn't a missionary, there isn't a church, and just loving them well. And it's just these small little things that we do consistently, that MAF has done consistently over 65 years in Papua, where they're showing Christ's love to them. They're seeing how they don't really deserve this thing, but we're, we're consistent in showing Christ's love. And out of that, come out believers over time. When we're back here, we like to talk about that, that we're recruiting prayers um, more than anything else. And we need so much prayer and from a mama's heart, you know, we always appreciate prayer for our kiddos that they would know Jesus as every parent, I think, would agree with and want that for their kiddos. Obviously, safety as Alex flies, it's really kind of crazy difficult flying there. Not only safety for me, but the other pilots out there, and then just the situation in Papua in general is tense, and it's always by the grace of God that we're able to fly out there. I just pray for our leadership in Jakarta and in Papua, that God would give us the wisdom and how to deal with the government so that we can continue to fly out there and that the local church would step up and really show Christ's love to not only the Indonesians but also the Papuans who are doing a lot of fighting in the name of freedom. We would love prayer that we would be sustained in daily life because um, it's hard and there's a lot of hard things happening all the time. We really feel the effects of prayer when our church body, our community here in the States are praying for us and we really, really appreciate it. It's something that sustains us and gives us encouragement while we are serving over there. God needs workers everywhere. If God is leading you to do it, you just gotta trust him and keep walking forward and he will catch you on the other side. And he has time and time again, he's with us. And even when it doesn't always go the way that we want it to, we know that he's doing something, that he's working. And that's really all worth the, the hardness of it because we see him working and we see that he's living and active and not just something that we can put out on a shelf until Sunday. That uh, video is a, a real uh, accurate picture of what we're talking about here tonight in a couple of different ways, at least. One is the spread of the good news of the gospel, even through difficulty. Uh, there has been a Christian witness in e Indonesia for about 100 years now. Um, 
but it has come through death and suffering and hardship and Christians being in a minority and tribes hating other tribes that had come to the good news of the gospel. And um, it's come through suffering, just as Paul is saying that the gospel uh, spread through the imperial guard at the time. The other is that Alex and Trisha, it is not easy to live there. It is not easy to have them there as their friends. It was so hard to send them back. A year ago this time on January 6th, um, Alex Plane was just about set on fire by terrorists. When he lands his plane, there is enough runway for him to land and stop, and that is it. And sometimes there is a two-foot margin of error on the landing and on the taking off, where if he misses, he hits the side of a mountain one way or another. And that's multiple flights per day that he is flying in a very mountainous region like that. After knowing this, and after knowing their plane had been set on fire, as I was talking to them about coming back here, he was like, this, is, this has been really hard to like process what happened and, and how close to death I really was. And he's like, but of course I'm coming back. Well, of course you're going back? What would make a person do such a thing? For me to live as Christ and to die as Cain. It seems heroic and it is quite a picture of what we're talking about here tonight to hear about Alex and Tricia. But you and I both know this is a daily struggle to have the mindset of to live as Christ and to die as gain. And some days it feels just as heroic to do the right thing, to follow Christ, to, to be the person God has called you to be, to have that Jesus plus something else will equal peace and joy. But when, when we remember that we are in Christ and we remember what Christ has done for us, even death itself does not have the final word over us or over the good news of the gospel and the mission that God has called us to. Would you take a moment and pray with me? God, whatever each one here is finding difficult here tonight, whether it is truly a physical situation of suffering that they or a loved one is going through, whether it is a spiritual reality of the struggle between the flesh and the spirit. God, whether someone here or many here are struggling to find their ultimate joy in Christ, Jesus, show us how good the good news is. Remind us of how good the good news is. Remind us, Jesus, of what you have done for us. God, I pray that we would walk in the freedom and joy that comes from proclaiming that to me, to live is Christ. God, show us what that looks like. May we be a people that experiences that joy, that walks in that freedom, that walks in that contentment that comes from knowing that we can be in Christ. God, for those that are facing death in some real way, God, we pray for your peace. We pray for your healing. We pray for your spirit to move even in the most dire situation and circumstances. God, our society has been confronted with death in a way that we have not experienced for a few generations. God, I, I pray that we would live in the peace and the joy that comes from the good news of the gospel, 
even as we look death in the face. Father, we, we pray that you would continue to speak through your spirit, your word, and your people as we go into this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have a little bit more we would like to do here tonight. A uh, couple of quick announcements and then uh, a couple of times of prayer to end here. Uh, one is we had planned on doing a potluck next week with um, so many people having COVID. A potluck would be interesting to try to pull off. So we are not going to try to pull that off and we're going to move it to February 20th. And instead of a potluck next week, we are going to have Lunchables and juice boxes for the children, for the children. Sorry. So, um, for any kids that come to the service, as you leave next week, Melissa and I will be handing out lunch boxes and juice boxes, or Lunchables and juice boxes. So, we'll have a meal to go. It's tough. It's tough to feed the kids on Sunday night. Do you feed them before? Do you feed them after? Usually the answer is yes for us. We feed them before and after, and sometimes during... So we're going to provide a meal for the kids next week. Uh, for you to know updates like that and things that are going on in our downtown community here, you get one weekly email from Grace Community Church, and it is a downtown-specific email. So each Tuesday over the lunch hour, you get an email, and that has downtown-specific information for you. And we ask that you open it up. You usually hear about the same things you're hearing on stage to make sure that you're uh, in the know about what's going on. And if you're not getting those emails, come talk to me or Bo or fill out an info card in the back. Um, we have a couple of times of prayer, but after we have those times of prayer, um, if you are here tonight and you do not have COVID, we would love your help with teardown because our whole teardown team has COVID or is otherwise not here tonight. So you are our teardown team tonight. So whatever you can do to help us out before you leave, that would be great. Many hands make light work. So if you could, at the very least, help us tear down the chairs, we'll roll out some carts. That would be great. Otherwise, you can help us start carrying stuff back towards the closet, and Bo or I will show you where they go. Before I close in prayer, we would like to have a, a time of prayer and commissioning for Brooks and Stacy. They're getting ready to go on sabbatical as soon as they leave this building, I think, or maybe they feel like they already are on sabbatical. Uh, but for those of you that don't know Brooks and Stacy, uh, Brooks is uh, our lead pastor for Grace Community Church. He preaches here about once a month, and when Brooks is not preaching, they worship with us here downtown. So they're part of our downtown family and they're going on sabbatical for 14 weeks, a time of rest and worship. And so we want to send them out on that. So if you guys want to come up here, Jeff, and if Joe is here as well, any pastors that are here, come on up and we will uh, pray for Brooks and Stacy and send them out. Well, you need a microphone. Thank you, Father, for uh, Brooks and Stacy's ministry to us. And I pray as they go on sabbatical that you will uh, heal their bodies, uh, refresh their souls, focus their minds on how they can uh, improve the ministry, focus the ministry. I pray for the trip that it be safe and that it be without trouble. And Lord, just be with them. Help this be a time of joy and peace. And getting to know you and each other better. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All stand with me. And I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that we heard from you tonight. Thank you that we could worship you tonight. Thank you that we could be the church. God, I pray that we would remember what our lives and this church 
And the good news of the gospel is all about what Christ has done for us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.